and I'm telling you, and I'm getting right, my, I had goosebumps on my arms and the back of my hair stood up, or my neck. This was the righteous guy that did this and dropped this polygraph bomb. So I called my DA. They, you know, the, 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 it, it took about four months to get him out of death row and out of San Quentin. And then this guy, they led him to a second degree murder, which back in the day, they just had so much going on. And he did about eight or nine years and got out. But at least I got this guy off. Because again, I don't care who goes. So that was the guy that was innocent that was on death row? Yeah, and they set the guy up. This is episode number 168 with Don Tabak. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. On today's show, we have a retired LAPD homicide detective who is a nationally recognized crime analyst. While serving with the LAPD, him and his team solved 100% of the cases that were assigned to them. And our guest is not only a nationally recognized crime analyst, but also an accomplished private investigator, heading up his own firm that works domestically and abroad. From some of the most notorious cases in Hollywood to the discreet cases of his private clients, there is little that Don Tabak has not seen or experienced in the world of investigating crime. In this episode of American Snippets, Don shares that expertise and experience with us as he answers questions about the field of criminal investigations and takes us behind the scenes of some of his cases. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Don Tabak. You're listening to the American Snippets podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. With over 25 years on the Los Angeles Police Department, Don Tabak has a perfect record as a homicide detective. He's a nationally recognized criminal analyst who's presented to hundreds of police and business organizations across the country. Maybe you've seen him on any of the national news or crime shows he's appeared on, but today you're seeing him on American Snippets. The best. The best. The best one yet. And we are very excited about that. Don, I'm super stoked to get into your story. It's a pathway we have not forged yet here on American Snippets. So oh, very cool. Yes, you are you are the first that is going to take us down the homicide trail, so to speak, um, which is territory that I am strangely comfortable in. So let's do it. <laughs> so I understand. And, and let's sorry. do it. Um, okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. How does somebody go about getting when when I hear someone has a perfect record, when someone says to me, my kid, you know, has perfect attendance at school, I'm like, Oh, you're the one that got my kid sick all the time, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my kid beat up your kid at school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm assuming the same does not apply to the world of homicide. You have a perfect record, it is because you are freaking good at what you do. Well, you know, yeah. let me let me clarify something. First okay. of all, I, I don't have myself a perfect record it it was a it was a combination of my partner yeah. and partners that uh, we all roll out of these homicides some incredible luck but the i think the bottom line and it still goes true today is being able to pursue those leads not getting tired well i gotta go home i've been up for 14 hours you know you have to continue the pursuit and you know this thing about yeah 48 hours or 72 hours to solve a murder is, is, is such horseshit um, Excuse me. It's so it's, it's not it. That's, yeah. it really is because you know, you're chasing clues all the time. And I've had murders where we could have solved the murder literally within hours after this girl was killed. But because everybody mounting together to lie and mislead us, it took us 59 days to solve that murder. But each day, again, we could have solved it if we would have just had this one gal that we uh, that was the best friend of the victim tell us what was going on. Is that, so, uh, is that yeah, it, it, it takes an incredible effort, just like you guys. Is that your Jody Bartmas case you're talking about? Oh, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everything that we start out with, Barbara, too, is that, you know, we owe it to the victim to solve their murder. We talk for that victim. And, again, I the way I was trained, and, and I, I thank God every day of the guys that trained me to do this kind of work that were tremendous homicide detectives that just had great resolve. 
And that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be like those guys where you hard charge, you keep going. And when all those clues are out, you reconvene with everybody, new eyes on it and find out where we could have gone or where should we go now? And then you get up and go. So the, that Bartmas murder was a perfect example of a prostitute that was stabbed uh, 42 times, knife point broken off in her skull from this guy raging on her. And, and again, it's a, it's a world that involved narcotics and involved this gal stealing who ended up being our suspect's uh, crack. And he went crazy and, and basically stabs her this 40 time, kills her. And then her best friend helps carry the body into the trunk of this guy's car and they dump her in some um, parking structure, a business strip mall type thing, right in the street, right in this parking lot. So that girl who we found immediately after we were called out just kept lying and lying and lying. And for what she was saying, it was corroborated by these other witnesses who at the time we didn't know were all together on this deal. So LAPD has a, a, they have a punishment per se that if you don't solve a murder in 60 days, you have to write this ungodly deep investigative report that goes up and down the chain of command. It basically says, you guys are pieces of shit. You, you just didn't solve this murder. And now we look like crap. So the clock starts, obviously, when we get that phone call, and you have those 60 days. On Jody's killing, if this chick named Pam would have talked to us and told us what she knew, instead of telling us 58 days later, that murder would have been solved in hours. In fact, the suspect rode through on his bicycle that morning when we were interviewing this girl, Pam, and I noticed that he looked at her with such disdain and, and just basically this fearful look. And she eyeballs him immediately. And she's talking freely to us. And as this guy rides his bike through, now all of a sudden she's balking at what she's saying. So we made that connection, but we had nothing really to go on. So murders like that, it's, um, they're a little bit tougher, but, uh, but I'm telling you, I think we have a cat visiting us. Uh, those type of murders are hard. But again, if you do the right things and you pursue where you're supposed to go, these things get solved. That's a long, long answer to your question. No, I, oh, that's what, that's what it's about. That's why, uh, that's why I'm asking the questions. Um, so let's walk it back to the early days because uh, it's always interesting to us to find out what led a person down the path. And particularly now we'll get into this in a little bit. Now yep. when law enforcement is at the forefront of so many things in this country, it is a particularly interesting to know what leads somebody to to follow that that path themselves like what what called you to enter into law enforcement when i um when i was a young patrol officer and you would go to these scenes of these 187s which is the penal code section for murder in here in california and you would see this 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 dead body laying there and i i used to marvel at how these detectives would come in and what were their ideas? How did they go in and solve these murders? What were they looking for? And that curiosity carried on to every murder room. And I want to do that. I want to be able to run, get a call in the middle of the night, keep running with these murders. And I said, running, carrying these cases. And there's nothing better than putting a, putting a circle where it says cleared by arrest, which is what you get credit for. So watching them on the chase and where they went. And I, I was fortunate to be on the Belushi murder. And I watched how they operated that crime scene, how within hours they had uh, Kathy, I forget what her name was, but they had her identified as the person that uh, supplied the drugs of Belushi. I'm like, God, how do you guys do this? And then going to New Mexico to pick her up on the extradition, all that was just so attractive to me, and especially working in Hollywood Division, which I did for my 14 years, and that's the path I followed. So I uh, was able to take a, a detective test um, after I think I had seven or eight years on and I was a detective trainee, they used to call it back in my day, where you were allowed to work detectives as a case carrying detective. And then you had X number of uh, time to take the test and make detective. And then of course you get transferred anyway. So I did that. And in uh, 1982, I started my detective career. And then in 1987, I got promoted to detective, went to another division, worked homicide there. And I ended up working in like six or seven other divisions of homicide. And then ultimately being uh, up in our, our criminal conspiracy section where I started an arson homicide unit. So 
all that wealth of information, obs you know, observing what these guys do was so attractive to me. Next thing I know, I'm running with them, you know, and I passed. And again, my hundred murders was also with my partner. I probably had 50 or 60 that I was the you know, primary detective and then being the secondary detective on the others. And all of mine, like I said, were all solved, but they all were solved by a great deal of hard work by a lot of people. Yeah, and that's an important point to make um, because if one aspect of that team or that chain or that formation isn't strong, it can pull down all the other work that's done and, and the case can just completely unravel, right? Well, and you're, you're so right on with that too. And that's, that's the fabric and that's the, the nature of the beast, so to speak, is if you don't follow the leads, if you don't go down the right paths, and the right paths are there for you, at least in my experiences, it's going to unravel. You're not going to solve that case. And again, it's not just you. There's an entire police department that surrounds you with as good as help as you're going to get. But the bottom line, it's up to you. You're the case chairing guy, it's you. You get out there, you interview these witnesses, you go, and I was gone, Barbara, Oh my God, I was able and lucky enough to travel the world with LAPD chasing down witnesses, literally in London, England, working with those guys in New York. It, it, it's this effort. You have to make that effort. And I didn't want to leave my sons to go out there and go away for five and six days when they're, you know, six and seven years old, but you have to do it. You have to have that dedication. And, and it's funny because now the adage is most of these guys all get cash overtime. And back in my day, the only ones that got cash overtime were homicide guys. And then they allowed it to be all the detective units. Well, guys that work forgery, which is a paper crime, and it's like, well, it already happened, so it's not a big rush to you know, get the thing solved. At 3.30, which is the time most people get off work from LAPD, they would grab a book and work a case and get the same overtime that I'm getting, getting called out at Friday night at you know, 3 a.m. and not coming home until Monday. So there was a little bit of like, what the hell's going on here? I'm out there running out, taking with stinky dead people. And these guys are working a forgery, getting the same money as I am. And eventually that dissipated where it went back to just homicide gets cash overtime. And there's an incentive of that too, you know, that you're, you're going to make back in my day, you're going to make a lot of money doing these murders. Yeah. And when you say that, if somebody is just listening, that can sound kind of cold, oh. um, but the reality is that, People who are doing this, the homicide detectives um, who show up at the absolute worst imaginable moment in somebody's life, they're also people. And, I, you know, I can speak like having been from the victim's family, it was I know what it's like to expect that person, that detective, whoever you're presented with saying this is the person that you need to rely on to bring you any kind of information. You want them to just it's hard it's easy to dismiss their own humanity and just want them to put you know, your case and your pain first but it's important to remember for everybody even encountering law enforcement today that you're all just people you have bills to pay you have kids to raise you have you know dreams to build of your own and you're just as entitled to that so when you and for you the homicide is a job like that's just what you do it's just ordinary nature you know but to other people who uh, aren't in, in the field, it can just sound like, you know, they, they could be taken aback by that, but I totally get it. And I appreciate that you're just, you know, so open and putting that out there. Let me, let me add something too. Yeah. It, it, and again, I stated it beforehand is that, you know, we are the vi victim's advocate. We are the ones that speak for that victim. And although it sounds cold in nature, um, there, there's a lot of emotion and, you know, of all the bad things that I've seen, and I've seen some really bad things, as most of these homicide guys have, is that you have to remember is that that's not anybody that you know. And you still have, whether it be a, a homeless person that got burnt up and shot, or it's some socialite that was really big within the Hollywood scene, they get treated the same as far as I, as far as I was concerned. And yeah, it's cold and there's black humor about it. And we, we joke about it because, and I don't mean that racially, I mean that just it's dark. Mm -hmm. Everything that we did was dark. And for us to be able to joke about it, and I laughed all the time. Otherwise, I'd go nuts over yeah. the hurt and the, and the things that I saw. And I, I wanted to preface something. 
you know, it's not, it's not a world that you're going to be thanked by everybody. We're not firemen. And when we get out to that scene and that dead person's laying there, and granted, I don't know him. And the, the interesting thing with murders is that's exactly, I get in there and there's a human being laying there dead. And I only know that that person, if he was alive and met new people, you start out wide and you meet your circle of friends and then you get to know them and then you get very, very uh, uh, acquainted with them and they become your very good friend. We start with a person in the, at, at that dead body and we have to work all the way out. And the things that we discover about that individual are things that parents, wives, husband, brothers, sisters did not know about that person. And that becomes the thing where, again, and I want to just give you a real quick example. We had a female that was killed who came from a very highfalutin family in Denver, Colorado. And she was a, she it wasn't a good looking woman. And she was befriended by some guys that got her involved in some very dark things. And eventually she's killed and she's killed in the worst possible way. Well, we go to her, we, you know, we fly to Denver to talk to the parents, to talk to the friends, to see what she's really all about. And she was a sweet woman. Eventually, the parents come out here because we wanted to go to her apartment with the parents. And we go to her apartment in downtown LA. And as I'm going through her stuff in her drawers in her bedroom, there were some really graphic pictures of this victim and some of these guys. And I kept them from the family. I put them in my pocket and I destroyed them. You know, technically, I could have been burned for that because they, they played in the scenario that she was in. But her parents didn't need to see that. They had her, you know, so vaulted up on a pedestal. And to be able to tell them what we really knew about her would have broke their hearts. So we didn't. And, you know, and that's just what we chose to do, I chose to do is never mind, not go tell them about it. And that, that's, you know, again, I can't be warm to the victim, they're gone. But I can be warm to the family, but, but outwardly to everyone is, you know what, Tayback was a cold guy. And it, it probably made me go home and love my sons even more than I loved them at that time, because I didn't want anything ever to happen to those people, those kids, my wife at the time. So um, there is some warmth to it. Uh, there's a lot of coldness to it. So I just, I just want to preface that, that, you know, you, you can't have time for war because there's a lot of hurt there. Yeah. I can only imagine how difficult that would be to just immerse yourself. Like that's your world, that's your life. What does that do to not just you, but you know, law enforcement and in particular people in your line of work in, in particular to come home, to have to, you know, one minute you're in this, horrible scene and this crime scene and seeing all these things and learning all these things. And then you walk in the door and you have two little boys, daddy, you know, and how, how do you make that transition where you get back into that space to outside of that world? Great question, Barbara. And the re and how I was able to deal with that. First of all, you hit it right on the button. I saw those two little guys coming at me when I'd come home after two or three days and it was amazing. And sidebar, like I said, my son's a firefighter. He's been gone now for nine days. I have a two-year-old grandson, my only grand grandchild. And this little boy or boy has missed that little boy for the last eight days. I was never gone eight full days. But no matter what was in front of me, to get home to them, and this goes back to my training, Barbara, is I was told, you only do what you can do on this job. And once you leave and you take that gun belt off and you go home, now you're Don Tayback citizen. You don't give a rat's ass about what's going on out there. You've done the best that you can to do your job. And then it ended. And I've got friends where I got six friends that are buried in these to particular cemeteries that killed themselves over this job. And, and maybe I just don't have the, maybe I'm just not wired that way. But once I was gone from that department, it was over. I didn't give a, I don't care what goes on in this world. I'm insulated with my wife at the time and my sons. And that's what brings you, you know, that's what I think levels you. That's what keeps you going forward is just your family or whatever you have outside of LAPD. And believe me, to this day, there's a lot of these guys that live and die for LAPD. And you can't, you can't do that. Or you will end up being in one of these cemeteries because the job will do that to you. Yeah, I, I bet it does. What is it when you get like, you've just worked this massive long shift, you come home, do you, can you come home and just 
fall asleep or just walk in the door and get called back out instantly. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that's always a chance. And again, because there were so many murders with the proliferation of guns and narcotics in the city of Los Angeles, that you're on call for that weekend. And I had just, it happened in Halloween, and I don't know when it was, 1988, 89, the kids were little, and my wife was gonna take the boys trick-or-treating, and then I was gonna stay home and hand out candy. And just as they got their costumes on, I had literally just walked into the door, we got called out again on another one. And it's so hard to leave them because I wanted to be a part of every little minute that those boys were, you know, had whatever they were going, I was going to be there. And uh, it, it was hard. And then to, put, you know, say, well, get again, you know, I didn't even have a shower. Jumped in the shower, put a suit on. You're supposed to be at the scene within an hour after you get the call. That was it. You got to go. And, and that's what we did. And I was hopeful that after this murder is done or we've wrapped up what we can is I can stay home for the rest of the weekend. Yeah. So, and I asked that because I know it's one of those careers that the family unit suffers a lot yeah. in. Yep. And like you mentioned, they have a high suicide rate. There's a high divorce rate. So it's similar to the military in that oh, absolutely. aspect in that it, it's just people, it's hard to understand that the family in a way is part of that service uh, or the ripple effect spreads out to really? them. Absolutely. And, and you know what, it's hard. And the only distinction I made between what I did and when I just left was going there. And I've only had to notify two families, Barbara, of, of the loss of their child. And, and that's extremely difficult. And again, whether it's an indigent person, a gangster, or, or like I said, some socialite, you still have to have some empathy for the family. And they go there and then watch the family break down. That bothers you. You know, that I used to hate search for it when you kick the doors in and the kids are in there and it's, it's so bad. And that was before I had kids. You know, they're screaming and crying and it is, it, it's a horrible thing. And the same as to walk up to you and, and God love you, uh, Barbara, you experienced that same thing of the notification. And no matter how hard you try to laugh and make jokes about it, you can't. You go there and it's so hard to come up with the words to tell these people that they've lost, you know, their loved ones been, and not just, you know, I just died in a traffic accident or a heart attack. They got killed by the, by the hands of another person. And, and that's tough. It's tough to do. Yeah. And I'm hearing from other interviews you've done and from the, you know, the, the research that I did do, you talked a lot about how Hollywood in particular, yeah. you called it a cesspool, you know, and that's the side. I think a little bit more about Hollywood is coming out now with social media, but you know, certainly back in the day when I was growing up, Hollywood was this just illusion of some fantasy world where all the beautiful people lived and nothing bad happened. We didn't know. We honestly, we didn't know that celebrities were assholes sometimes. Like we just oh, thought absolutely. like, we just thought like, if you're in the movies and you're this beautiful person, you must be a beautiful person all the time. And there was a lot of beautiful people that uh, ended up not being so beautiful in that division. And yeah. again, I came from the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I had no, I first went out to, to uh, South Central in 77th division to, to where I did my, my probation. I didn't even know where 77th was. I had to call the, the watchman and ask him how to get there. And, you know, I had a, a I wasn't dumb, and I, but I certainly didn't know what prostitution was. I didn't know what drag queens were. I didn't know that there were street When you went out on the call, you didn't know what prostitution was? No, no. And I did this thing. And like it's these so chicks, at, at one time, to show you how bad it was, yeah. we went out in patrol. And I worked four years of Hollywood Vice, which is probably why I'm so nuts as I am today. Yeah. And, and all you do is work prostitution is you start thinking some really weird things. And this is before I went to work uh, homicide. But at one time, uh, in 1978 or 79, Hollywood Division encompassed an area that ran from Sunset Boulevard, which everybody would do, between Havenhurst and another, and, and another street. And it was like four and a half miles it was in Hollywood Division. On a weeknight, and I think it was a Wednesday night, there was 415 working street whores from, in a four and a half mile radius. I mean, they were four and five deep back in those days. And, and it was just, it was so rampant. And, the adage was, if you could make it out of Hollywood after, you know, however long you worked there and you were still sane, you would have a great career because so many guys got caught up in touching prostitutes and going that way. And, you know, there, you talk about the thin blue line, that, that, that was really tested. And, and working vice where all you do is operate prostitutes 
and male prostitutes for three years, I'm telling you, you come out with a whole new aspect in life. You know, where my wife, I'd come home and I went, hmm, I saw this porn movie. And porn, remember back then, was illegal. And if you remember, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Deep Throat, which was the first really porn movie. Oh my movie. God, yes. I, I mean, we not that sent, I saw it or anything. No, but you of course know. not. Either did I. We were sent into the Century Theater on Sunset Boulevard and took it off the projector. We no. confiscated it, yes. Okay, go to the Century Theater and, and get this film because they're not allowed to have it. Well, what's wrong? Well, it's porn. Well, what's porn? Well, we don't know, but when we see it, we'll know what it is. So that's what I, you know, that's the era that I came from. Right. So times streetwalkers and hustlers, and there was a, a place called the Gold Cup, which was world-renowned. It was at Sunset in Las Palmas in Hollywood. And this was the number one pickup site for pedophiles. And you'd have these young boys in clusters standing on that corner, and these these I don't even know what to call them, would come up in their Cadillacs or their cars and pick these young boys up for sex. So I'm walking a footbeat in Hollywood Division for seven years, and that was on my footbeat. And you couldn't get rid of these people. The laws weren't geared to get rid of these people, either get rid of the tricks or get rid of the pedophiles like they are today. So, again, my, <laughs> my, my poor ex-wife probably just thought, like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, I... You, I would come home just reeking of these cheap perfumes. She, she would get so pissed, like, you know, go in the other room. And like Shalimar, and I don't, I don't know. Shalimar. I remember that, I remember that <laughs> perfume only because I remember this prostitute. I go, God, you smell really good. And, you know, and she's drenched in this. And I, what is that? Because I want to buy it for my wife. And, you know, Shalimar. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you got to wear Shalimar. I'm not wearing Shalimar. Believe me, that's like the cheapest stuff in the whole world. It's like sweat. <laughs> so it was an eye opener. So um, back to growing up, did you see the world of law enforcement? Like, you know, do you have a family that served in law enforcement? What was it that? No, I I was just um, after being. I wanted to be a pro baseball player. I got really. I played for a minor league team with the Angels in LA, a rookie team. They called it. That didn't work out. The radio thing didn't work out. So I ended up working at an amusement park out in the Santa Cruz area called Magic Mountain. And, you know, for my $2 an hour, and we formed a, a flag football team. And I had played in junior college and, and in high school. So we, um, LAPD had a, had a division called Metropolitan Division, and they had a flag football team. We played them, and they kicked the living shit out of us. I mean, we, I, don't, that, that, I think they stopped scoring because it, there was no more scoreboard. But after the game, uh, a dear friend of mine who's now passed him, Charlie Duke, is talking to me and says, Don, you got to come on the police department. I went, no. First of all, I don't think I'll, I, they would allow me on the police department. Not that I was bad, but I was raised by a single mother, irreverent for, for any kind of authority. And uh, he tells me that they meet girls and they get to play football and baseball and they get, they're making like $960 a month to start. I went, oh my God, I, I was making $1.75 an hour back in 1972. Wow. And this was in June of 1972. So I thought, well, what the hell? You know, I'll take it. And I took this test on July 10th and October 2nd, I was in the academy, not knowing mm -hmm. anything about life at all. Just this smart ass, irreverent guy. I was 20 and a half years old and believe me, zero life experience. And however you're thinking that, that's exactly where it was. I had not even been intimate with a woman. And I'm in this academy right out of Vietnam with all these soldier guys that came back from fighting this war. I didn't know how to march. You had to raise your hand to ask permission to speak, to answer a question. That's a waste of time. I'm just telling you the answer. And these guys would get so pissed off that um, at the end of the first phase, the first month, they had a... Uh, <laughs> they had a rating system with green and yellow tickets. So green tickets meant everybody, everybody liked you and yellow tickets, but you're just such a piece of shit. Everybody hates you. So at that time there was 52 guys in the class and I got 48 yellow um, slips. I'm a, I'm a dick. I'm a smart ass. Um, you know, uh, it would be like, Hey, you got to straighten up. Hey, F you want to fight. <laughs> and that was my background. So, um, and I, I tell the story, and maybe it helps somebody through, through life. 
is, do you remember an officer and a gentleman in the movie? Yes. Do you remember when they were trying to get Richard's Gear character to resign and they were taking him through all this physical training and I can't remember the black guy's name, kept screaming at him, you know, I want you to resign. He goes, no, I'm not resigning. I want you to quit. No, I'm not quitting. Well, I get a call or I was told to go to the PT office, which is the physical training office. And uh, these guys say, uh, hey, we want to talk to you. And this was at 3.40 in the afternoon on a Friday. And at about 10 minutes till 10, they let me go home after kicking the living snot out of me. And not physically, per se, but making me run, doing these push-ups, telling me I'm a piece of shit, telling me to resign, nobody likes me. And it just broke me down. And a guy named Bill Arnato, who saved my life, basically, and, and led me on the road saying, instead of thinking everybody else was wrong, I went, hmm, you know what, I think I'm wrong. I don't think, I don't think I've approached this the right way. And I'm crying and everything else. And, and about 11 o'clock, after he talked to me, let me go. And I came back to work on that Monday for the academy. And I apologized to my, my classmates. And I really did. It, it really saved me. It's, I thought, you know what? You're a dick. Um, you're not a great baseball player. Or you would have been signed. You're not a great football player. Or you would have gotten a scholarship to you know, one of the schools that I tried to go to. And the bottom line is, this is going to be my third career within a year and a half. And I just felt that, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. And not to rah-rah me or anything, but I went from being dead last in my class to being number two um, at the end of the five months. And really learned to be, I, I kept my sense of humor and I kept, you know, my little bit of wackiness, but I, I understood about authority. I understood that you have to be a certain way, especially in that job. And the $960 a month wasn't too bad either you know, which I never had money in my life. And uh, that, that day really changed my life for me. And I think it set me forward to go where I wanted to go and have a pretty successful career with uh, LAPD. Yeah, that's quite the transformation from oh. the bottom of the, of the heap, you know, to up among, up among yeah. the top. And good for you, there's a lot of lessons to be pulled from that. Uh, a little slice of humble pie sometimes is, is all we need. It is, you know, and only in America <laughs> could that happen because anywhere where else they would have just, you know, shot me. And uh, I think, you know, I, I, I raised my sons. I became a single dad um, for a great deal of time. And I think it helped me raise these guys. It was just trying to understand. And I, my sons, one is like, you know, the pretty boy, the, the quarterback guy. And the other one is like just this grungy guy. And I never understood him. And I think all my experiences and then talking to him as he became an older kid really got to understand him, which really opened my eyes up to people and to, to appreciate their character versus their look. And that in itself really, really propelled me to understand people and just stay, I stayed right in the middle of the road. I didn't care what color you wore. Um, my job was to solve murders. And I, I've had a triple murder that, that professed his innocence to the day he was going to San Quentin to the death chamber there. And he kept telling me about a, a guy that, that was a righteous guy. And it, it's, it's another story that'll take you on the tell. But long story short, I got that guy out of, out of death row at San Quentin. Wow. And got another guy. This guy was responsible for three murders on a fire. Started a fire in an apartment building at 53rd in Vermont, Los Angeles. And he told me about this guy. And I... Barbara, I swear, and I think this is what has set me right, is that, you know, if, you, if everything points to you and I arrest you, it's not me. It's just the facts. I, I am a gatherer of facts. And I give somebody the facts and I say, yep, that's who the person is arrested. And we did. And if any time you think that you're, you can give me something that proves your innocence, I, I'll go. I'm getting paid good money to, to work overtime. And this particular guy kept professing his innocence through the trial and blah, blah, blah. Three eyewitnesses ID this guy starting the fire. When we find him 18 hours later, he smells like gasoline. His hands are singed up, and yet he's professing he didn't do it. And lo and behold, we go and find this guy that was in the Chino prison before our guys getting ready to leave. And this guy drops the biggest bomb in the world to me, and it had to do – there's a thing in, in, in law enforcement, just working homicides, they call a polygraph key. It's something that we always hold out that the public or anyone else who thinks they're a suspect, they won't know about this polygraph key. 
Well, this had to be over a yellow Bic lighter, Barbara. And while I'm talking to this guy by myself on tape, he says, well, you know what? Um, I didn't have the lighter. The, the, that Bic lighter came from so-and-so. And I said, what color was that lighter? He goes, yellow. And I'm telling you, and I'm getting right, my, I had goosebumps on my arms and the back of my hair stood up, or my neck. This was the righteous guy that did this and dropped this polygraph bomb. So I called my DA. They, you know, the, the, it, it took about four months to get him out of death row and out of San Quentin. And then this guy, they led him to a second degree murder, which back in the day, they just had so much going on. And he did about eight or nine years and got out. But at least I got this guy off. Because again, I don't care who goes. So that was the guy that was innocent that was on death row? Yeah. And they set the guy up to fall. A gangster. It was a dope deal that gone bad. And this guy gets in with a a can of gas. Our suspect's trying to burn our guy. And he takes a, a, our guy breaks away, but he takes a, the suspect takes the lighter and ignites it. So our guy got the gasoline spell and the singeing of the hand because it was right there. And uh, the three eyewitnesses were the three girlfriends of our dope dealer suspect, the true suspect, that said, yep, that was him. And their stories were different. We went, yeah, you know, those are good eyewitnesses. All the way through to this guy is convicted by a jury, and he sent up the, you know, sent up to San Quentin to die. Wow. And uh, it was, so, you know, you feel good on stuff like that. But again, you know, we talk about the death penalty, and, and it's arbitrary, and blah, 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 blah. Well, it's the only thing we have. And here's a guy that it, it fit. You know, it fit the litmus test to a T. And this guy probably would have gone through and died if this guy, T-Bone, whoever his name was, if I never got to see him, our guy's going to death row and he's going to be killed by the state of California for a murder that we thought he committed. So that's the good thing about the system. It does work. It doesn't work all the time, but it does work. And it was, <laughs> and right now, that's the only system we have. And you go, that's kind of a city system, you know, but that's all we have. Well, it it sounds like in that instance the system came very close to not working in the in the absolutely worst way. In absolutely. my case, we saw the guy who put a guilty plea in, he entered a guilty plea, and it was rejected, and he was acquitted. Um, but so, and they kept saying to me, you know, it's better to see one ten innocent men or ten guilty men set free than one innocent man, you know, convicted. Blah blah. But that's a load of crap because I have also seen it work the other way around. You know where. Absolutely where innocent people uh, are convicted. And that's, that to me, I think is more terrifying to think of somebody sitting on death row for something that, that they didn't do. I mean, does that, that's a whole other debate, I guess, to get into the whole death penalty. Oh yeah. And, and, but again, it worked for this time only because of the guy that he can, he kept professing Bluebird or Jay, and I can't remember the guy's street name. And I kept telling the guy's name was Donald Eastman. I said, Donald, Tell me where he's at. I don't, I have no qualms going and interviewing the guy. Yeah. And um, this, this case brought us to Alabama, to Mississippi, to where one of the, uh, our witnesses that knew the guy that had heard him say he's going to burn down the place over this dope deal. This guy got burned up, Barbara, about 85% of his body. He should have died and he didn't. And he's <laughs> When you're a burn victim, the body recedes into a pugilistic stance. Mm -hmm. So this guy was halfway there for the rest of his life. He lived. And he's in Mississippi. And and just to show you the ironicity of this, we go with this guy from from, uh, Mobile, Alabama, this great big white southern guy. And we're going to Olive Branch, Mississippi, which opened my eyes that in 19, the late 1980s or early 1990s that there's some shit going on in Olive Branch. And we walk up to this guy's house and he's on the porch smoking a cigarette with his fused hands, right? And I, I see him from like 20 yards out going, this is insane. This guy got burnt up and he's playing with, <laughs> playing with a match to light his cigarette. So we get in there to get him and, and talk to him and you know, he takes that breath and says, yeah, we, we put a case on him. And, and that's the vernacular a lot of cops use about putting a case on somebody. And he, we ended up flying him back. He was, it was, we had a, like, he was in a wheelchair fused up, so we had to take him back on an airplane. And, and you know, that's a whole other story. But he got on the stand and testified that he lied. And they found him guilty of perjury and just, you know, they're going to put him in jail. Christ, you can't take care of the guy. 
and uh, it just shows you know, the give and take again of that of that world. Yeah, is I owed it to you to go make sure that you weren't the the guilty guy. Crazy. So, what are some of the differences? You, you talk. You know that world is still that world today, and but it's also not that world. It's it, yeah. so many things have changed. So, what do you think is is a little different about law enforcement officers serving today first, you know, back, back when you did. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. And in my private investigations life, um, I do a lot of officer involved shooting, teaching and how to do the investigations the proper way. And then I'm called in as an expert on a lot of these um, lawsuits that come about as a result of a use of force, whether it be a beating or, or a shooting like you're seeing nowadays. And I interview a lot of cops. And the difference is now is, a, I don't think there's a lot of loyalty to the job, A, that you're not dedicated to your profession. I was. I, I lived and breathed at LAPD. I, I, was, I, I started a football team with them. Um, I got to start a, a homicide unit, which is like the, the greatest comp in the world that they're going to put you in charge of a unit. Um, you know, I got to go to, and I don't even know if they have it anymore, a homicide symposium in Kansas City were world homicide detectives from Russia, Japan, all gathered to talk about their story because the proliferation of murders. And I got to present one of my, my murders and how it was solved. Conversely today is social media is out there that I didn't have in my life. Not to say that I did anything wrong and all that. I, I truly believe I never did. I've never put a case on the guy illegally. But today, um, without the loyalty there and I think without the responsibility is these guys are out there just like not caring and not understanding the job. And if you look at what's happened in the last six months is you're just thinking, how are you, how are you not conforming, right? LAPD, like OJ Simpson. Simpson taught us so much about how bad we were at investigations. Stepping in blood, we didn't know any of that. Um, I've had cases, Barbara, where I'm holding on to blood that we got from the scene, but I have nowhere to book it, and I'm still on my way, you know, doing my, my crime scenes or uh, my interviews. At a day and a half later, after storing it in my refrigerator, I would bring it to our central facility to drop the blood off. Well, as a result of that, SID, our Scientific Investigation Division, crime scene investigation became really dominant, where we got professionals to go there instead of me trying to pick up blood. There's places all over the, 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 the city of Los Angeles to deposit blood now. So good things come of that. And after everything that's going on right now, the difference is these guys are scared to death, these cops. And I talk to them, Barbara, and they're afraid. They're afraid that their apartment's not backing, up, it, backing them up. And if you look at in Salt Lake City, um, last week, a sergeant and two officers went to the news and says, we're afraid for our jobs. Our city doesn't back us up. Our mayor doesn't back us up. And they're in a world of hurt. And because things now have changed so drastically, where we're the bad guys, and I'm telling you, if we end up defunding police across the board like that, there's going to be absolute anarchy here. And the bad guys that are out there now will become really good bad guys. So these guys, these cops, are trying to, to, to make sure that that doesn't happen. And they're dealing with a public right now that does not like cops. And that's tough. It's because as soon as you pull some guy over, he's going to be harping at you for a ticket. Um, if you go to, and most of these guys now, Barb, their apartments are not sending them on anything other than crimes against person. So if you got burglarized and they've taken everything you've ever worked hard for, you're not going to see a cop because they don't want to take the chance of sending them out there and something's going to happen. So conversely, when I see this, when I talk to these guys, just they, they got to really rise up to the forefront and really understand that, as like Simpson, good things happen to our department, good things will become of this. We'll get better training. And this, this isn't a thing with these cops are a-holes and they want to gun down people. I mean, if you look at the statistics, you always hear about, you know, how many black men or black people were killed by law enforcement. First of all, black-on-black -black crime is still the most prevalent crime across the country right now. And there, there's thousands of more black people killed by black people than what cops do. And more white Caucasian people are shot, and this is, this is the FBI um, um, records, statistics, there's more white people shot by cops 
than black people. It's just as a lot of black people die and have died. And that's wrong as well. There's, there, yeah, you see some of these things where they're shot in the back or, or they're shot running away on an autistic child. You just got to pull your head out of your ass. What are you doing? Especially now, what are you doing? So, you know, training will, will come from this. Um, maybe we'll be better when we uh, confront mentally ill people. Maybe there will be an expert with, uh, with law enforcement to calm the situation down, but we need to be better de-escalators of force. And that's what I try to promote when I talk to these guys is, you know what, um, I, I show a film of an Oxnard, California police officer that had the most incredible shooting experience, and I don't mean that in, in the derogatory way. He had a young girl, a 17-year-old girl with a knife. Got the call, he's first on the scene, and he confronts the girl, and he parked his car about 120 yards away from her. And she's sitting down, and he's walking up on her by himself, and says, hi, can I talk to you? And she immediately bolts up and starts walking toward her with the knife held out in her hand in, a, in an absolute um, dangerous way. And he's telling her, and he's, he's got his body cam on, like, put the knife down, let's just talk, I wanna to talk to you, you're not in trouble. And he, Barbara, I'll send you the, the, my, my copy of the tape. He is as calm as we're talking right now. I'm probably more animated than he ever was. Well, he's put the knife down, put the knife down, put the knife down, and she gets within 10 feet of him. He's backed up already, he's backing up, telling her put the knife down, well he backs up to his car. He can't go anywhere, and he fires two shots and hits her. And he is administering first aid to her, and she's going, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he's telling her, it's, it's okay, I'm, you're going to be fine, you're okay. And I mean, he never got agitated, shoot down, motherfucker, you know, none of, none of that. And that is my most perfect shooting that I've ever seen. And if you can get people like that, that try, but eventually he had no choice. He had, there's nothing else he had at his disposal, rubber bullets or gas or anything of like that. He had to shoot her or risk injury to himself. And he ain't making enough money in Oxnard PD to you know, get injured like that. And yet the compassion that he showed to her is it's textbook. So hopefully that, that ideal, that rationale, we can teach to these young cops. And you, know, you take away the Minnesota thing, those guys should be in prison the rest of their lives. I'm sorry. That was absolutely, what the f are you thinking, yeah. you know? But that Oxnard kid, perfect shooting. And it's going to happen over and over because, again, when you threaten law enforcement, you're going to be dealt with severely. So, but it's that severity is, okay, what are we looking at? What are we assessing? Do we really need to shoot right now? Um, I have another tape of a Texas officer, um, and I think it was all over television, telling a black lady to get out of her car. Get the fuck out of the car. And she's smoking. Put that cigarette out. Well, why are you so agitated? It was over a citation, Barbara. And this old boy, you know, get, get, get out of here. And he, he starts yanking her out by her hair. Wow. Like, because of a ticket? And because she said no to you? See, and this is the thing, too. We need to bring us down. We're not gods out there. We're not juries. We're cops. Right? Enforce the job, or enforce the law. Do what you got to do. And then go home. Right, you don't get pissed off because you don't know how many times I got told no. Really? And if you get with that prostitute murder, yeah. the when I got the interview, the suspect who was already in custody by the time that we interviewed him, he looked at me and he goes, "Fuck you, I ain't saying shit." And I said, "You don't need to say anything, Indio. I got you so good, you don't need to say shit. I just wanted to see you. But if you see me again, it's going to be fuck you." So about. Two weeks later, after we got everything solved and we got a warrant for him, I walked back up to the jail in Tehachapi, California. He sees me walking in, and we make eye contact. And I sat down, and I took a second, and just the way I was, I went, no, fuck you. And I handed him the, the, the warrant for his arrest. And, and then, of course, it, it, was, it was a great case, then he got prosecuted, and blah, blah, blah. So, again, you need to just know, I think these guys nowadays, it, it, they need to be trained better. And it's, it's not an issue of these guys being jerks and cops are idiots. They're lacking training. And in 2020, was it late September, they need to start being differently trained. We got to stop that warrior aspect of us. 
is we're trained to be warriors and we need to go to the, the aspect of being a protector. And I think once that mentality is, is really ingrained on these guys, you're going to see a lot of, a lot less of what you're seeing now, but we society, we need to give these guys a chance. You know, all these guys aren't turds. They're, they're good guys trying to do their jobs. And, uh, boy, boy, it's tough right now. It's tough. And, you know, you, all you got to do is turn on the TV, and I think it's daily now you're going to see something involved with law enforcement. Yeah. What are some things that you think community members can do in conjunction with law enforcement to kind of de-escalate all of this and, and rebuild where we all kind of live as peacefully as, as possible, you know? Yeah, that's a great question too. And you know what? We need the, and it goes back to this community policing thing, which I didn't really believe in because again, there's only so much you can do. And then eventually you got to be a, a cop, but we need to sit down, not management, not these chiefs and these deputy chief. We need to sit down with these line officers and get to know them and let the community know, know them, you know, that my name's Don Tabak. I'm out here trying to do the job for you. And again, when we get rid of that, that warrior attitude and that macho shit, and we get down to being human being, then they're going to see law enforcement in a different light. That, hey, I know you guys have a job to do, number one. And number two, I know it gets hard for you, but you know what? You don't need to get all pissed off and pull this lady out of the car because they said no to you. And you don't need to sit there. The guy, st- <laughs> the guy stole your taser and, and you're chasing them down a Wendy's parking lot and you shoot them in the back. See, they need to sit down with that guy and go, what are you thinking? What happened that made you do that? And I, I swear to you, not because I'm sitting here grandstanding or looking down at this, I would have waved goodbye to the guy. Bye. And they would have, they probably would have suspended me with grabbing my taser. But who gives a shit? And that's how I was trained, Barbara. I'll find the guy tomorrow with my taser. Somebody's just saying, hey, I just saw whatever, Richard, with your taser. I'll get the guy. I'll get him tomorrow. But, you know, we had a thing in, in Rampart Division in LAPD a few years ago that, you know, they were putting cases on guy, planting evidence, um, getting a shooting, being involved in the rap music industry. And again, that thin blue line, they crossed, they jumped in it. They need to be prosecuted and, and put away for the rest of their life. But that guy that shot the guy in the back at Wendy's, these three idiots that are doing the thing in Minnesota, that needs to be shown over and over and over again, roll call training or regular training and have these guys go, it's what you don't do, but bring the community in and show them that, hey, we're telling these guys, right? Take a step back, (gasps) deep breath, right? This isn't life or death here. Let them run with your taser. We'll find them tomorrow. Um, The riot things, I have no idea about that. I, I don't know. I'm not going to, I was in the riots in 1993 in LA and, you know, I got into nothing like these guys got into, but when it came down to push and shove, I, I'm pushing. Now, I don't know if I'm killing anybody, but I mean, uh, there was, a, and I, I had the luxury of wearing a suit and tie going to all the murder scenes, the 52 murder scenes that were um, done by the riots, the guys that died. I went and did those homicide scenes. So I wasn't in the whole buck, but, um, my little boy, if I could tell a story real quick, when they pulled this guy out of, the, out of a truck, right when it started, <clears throat> and I can't remember the last, his, this guy's name, but we got notified. I was at my boy's Little League practice, and one of my coach's wives came down all frantic. Hey, they're calling you guys in. They're writing. This was after the uh, verdict came in on the guys from the Rodney King case. And um, Reginald Denny, that's the guy's name. I get home, and on the TV, just as I walk in with my son, they're pulling this Reginald Denny out of the truck and just start stomping on him. And Damian Williams takes that cinder blocks and throws it on this guy's head. And my son looks at me and says, Dad, what's going on? Why are they doing that? Well, you know what? I wanted to tell him what I really thought about it. And I just, you know what? These guys are angry and they're, they're just not spewing their anger the right way. Well, you know what? If you go back, and again, I think, all, all these protest songs from the 60s, all these um, love train songs from the early 70s, it is so ungodly that if you listen to that music, it all applies again in 2020, about loving each other and being more more um, aware, being just more friendly, 
the, you remember the, the Coca-Cola thing? I like to teach the world to sing. That's all coming back now again. So I told my son, I go, they're just angry. And they probably don't mean to do that. It's not the way to show your anger. But, you know, I couldn't tell them what I wanted to tell them. They're a bunch of assholes and they are stopping this guy. He didn't do anything to them. But I wanted him to grow up understanding, you know, and the same is now is get this community to understand about our job and we need to know about them. And it's not these rich people that are having these bad um, effects with law enforcement. It's, it's people who are not in, in the, that high era, the high strata. They're lower income people. And we need to deal with that and understand them. If they're angry just because of the situation they're in. And I think once you sit down with cops, line cops, and they talk to the community, let them know what's on their mind and why they're doing what they're doing, I think that's going to tighten this thing up. But the pendulum isn't switching back like it has, you know, between Vietnam and coming back. These guys are all pigs. We were pigs. Um, these guys come back and Vietnam were treated like crap. So a long story short, Barbara, is I just think there be, needs to be that communication that we just talked about. And I think that'll take care of a lot of these problems. Yeah, excellent. All right, what's, what's um, next for you? What is next for me? Um, you know, I, I've got uh, my PI business going on and I've got about three more years until my, my wife, um, she's a, a, a nurse, a, a cardiothoracic surgical nurse, and so she's able to go and retire. And then it's uh, going to be back fishing for a week here and a travel thing here and just sit back. But I, you know what? I, I always want to be involved with these guys, these law enforcement guys. I really do think I can help and make them understand stuff. So, you know, hopefully they keep using me in their, their civil lawsuits against the cities. And, you know, I, I'm here to help, basically. Excellent. All right. Here's the question that we like to ask our guests, and you're about to get it too. Okay. Um, we built American Snippets largely because um, we got tired of the divisiveness then a couple of years ago, but also we got tired of hearing people talk about how nothing was possible in this country, how the American dream was dead and just an illusion and not available to everybody. But we believe that's different. But the key factor is we believe that looks different for everyone. We think everybody has their own version of what they want that American dream to be. So we'd like to ask you, what is your version of the American dream? What does that look like for you? God, you ask great questions. <laughs> um, and for me, it's that my sons are able to pursue the work they want to do and for them to be happy and to just be successful, whatever their their idea of success is for them to be successful and for them to be able to live in a country that really is free from all this strife. And there's always going to be some, but you know, I want them to know that what they're doing helps. And, and I think that's my dream is that for my sons to live and my grandson now to live in a, in a country that we are still allowed to do whatever we want to do and pursue whatever we want to pursue. And that's my dream. And my dream in my life has always been dedicated to my sons, Barbara. So if those guys are happy, then you know what? I've done my job. And uh, that's my dream. And that's my American dream for these guys to live in a country that they're able to do what they want to do. I love that. Thank you so much. And if people want to connect with you and consult with you about working on a case that they need help with, with your private investigation firm, or if they want to hire you to come speak, uh, where can they find you and learn about all that? Thank you. Um, I have a website and it's dtabackasso.com. And the, the ASSO is not also, it's for associates. So it's dtabackassociates, I'm sorry, dtabackasso.com. And that's my website. Give me an easier website, dontabak.net. And then I have another uh, key to that is don, D-O-N, tabak, T-A-B-A-K, dot com. Dot net. I'm sorry, dot net. That'll bring you right to everything that really that we offer um, through our agency. So those two sites will absolutely be able to get hold of me. And, and I'm telling anybody that if you need help with, with these things that are going on, I am available and would love to help. And, and that's the bottom line. I want to keep helping. 
Excellent. And I hope that nobody does need your services, but I am smart enough to realize that there will always be a need for your service or maybe cynical enough to know that there'll always be a need for, need for your service. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely recommend having been on the short end of the stick as the family of a victim that the case yeah. fell apart. I can yeah. assure you, you never want to feel that. So it is well worth your time to consult with and hire people who are the experts and will not allow that to happen. So please do uh, reach out to Don and, uh, and make sure that does not happen in your world. Don, thank you so very much for Barbara, thank all you, you very much. I, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, and thank you. We appreciate you coming on and, and sitting down here with us at American Snippets. All right, everyone, there you have it. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'd like to personally thank Don Tabak for being here as well and sharing his story. If you got any value out of this episode, you enjoyed uh, Don's story, please share this podcast with a friend, uh, share it on social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube, at American Snippets. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review on iTunes iTunes reviews go a really long way in helping us get uh, our growing our audience and getting these stories out there in front of more people. So we would appreciate it if you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Uh, don't forget, we do a full write-up uh, each and every week on every one of our guests over at americansnippets.com. Head on over to American Snippets, check out the article, re-listen to the podcast episode, watch the video interview, and we'll also include some links there that you can use to learn more about Don Tabak and everything that he does. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here today. Don't forget, we have our Great American Syndicate. This is our association of patriotic, freedom-loving Americans who want to pursue more out of life and do it in a way that gives back uh, to uh, not only themselves, but to their family, community, and country. Uh, go to greatamericansyndicate.com, uh, claim a free t-shirt, and we hope to see you on the inside. Again, we appreciate you being here today. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. <music>